Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is afraid to talk about. The Doc Washburn Show podcast is available for download at all your favorite podcast platforms. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. This is episode 184 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Thursday, June 30th, 2022. Coming up, does the Biden regime have a plan to rig the 2022 midterm elections? Also, how stupid does Pelosi's January 6th committee think we are? And just what did Pfizer know about the vaccine and when did they know it? Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. All right, let's get right to it. Again, this is the show that warns you about things coming up. This is the show that doesn't ever want you to be able to say, Hey, Doc, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you warn us? Molly Hemingway over the Federalist.com, article entitled, Yes, Biden is hiding his plan to rig the 2022 midterm elections. And here's what it says. And again, I'll never call him president. We'll call him something else. Usurper Biden really does not want the public to know about his federal takeover of election administration. Have you heard about this anywhere? She's on Fox News on a regular basis. Have they allowed her to talk about it? On with Brett Baer? I kind of doubt it. Anyway, Molly Hemingway continues. Dozens of members of Congress have repeatedly asked for details to no avail. Good government groups, members of the media, and private citizens have filed requests under the Freedom of Information Act. Not a single one has been responded to. All signs indicate a concerted effort to keep the public in the dark until at least after the November midterm elections. The lack of transparency and responsiveness is so bad that the Department of Justice and some of its agencies have been repeatedly sued for the information. When Biden ordered all 600 federal agencies to expand citizens' opportunities to register to vote and to obtain information about and participate in the electoral process on March 7, 2021, Republican politicians, constitutional scholars, and election integrity specialists began to worry exactly what was up his sleeve. They had good reason. The 2020 election had suffered from widespread and coordinated efforts by Democrat activists and donors 
to run get-out-the-vote operations from inside state and local government election offices, predominantly in the Democrat-leaning areas of swing states. Independent researchers have shown the effect of this takeover of government election offices was extremely partisan and favored Democrats overwhelmingly. At the time the order was issued, Democrats were also hoping to pass H.R. 1, a continuation of the effort to destabilize elections throughout the country via a federalized takeover of state election administrations. Biden gave each agency 200 days to file their plans for approval by none other than Susan Rice, his hyperpartisan domestic policy advisor. Yet fully nine months after those plans were due, they are all being hidden from the public. Even as evidence is emerging that the election operation is in full swing. Mobilizing voters is always a political act. There are several major problems with Biden's secret plan, according to critics. It's unethical to tie federal benefits to election activity. It's unconstitutional to have the federal government take authority that belongs to the states and which Congress has not granted. And given that all 50 states have different laws and processes governing election administration, it's a recipe for chaos, confusion, and fraud at a time when election security concerns are particularly fraught. Again, mobilizing voters is always a political act. Choosing which groups to target for get-out-the-vote efforts is one of the most important activities done by political campaigns. Federal agencies that interact with the public by doling out benefits can easily pressure recipients to vote for particular candidates and positions. Congress passed the Hatch Act in 1939, which bans bureaucrats and bureaucracies from being involved in election activities after Democrats used Works Progress Administration programs and personnel for partisan political advantage. Executive Order 14019 ignores that the Constitution does not give the executive branch authority over elections. That power is reserved for the states with a smaller role for Congress. With H.R. 1 and other Democrat Party efforts to grab more control over elections, having thus far failed, Congress has not authorized such an expansion. As with previous efforts to destabilize elections, the chaos and confusion that would occur are part of the plan. So Biden's Biden's executive order copied much of a white paper put out by left-wing dark money group Demos. D-E-M-O-S, which advocates for left-wing changes to the country and which brags on its website that it moves, quote, bold progressive ideas from cutting-edge concept to practical reality, unquote. Uh Not coincidentally, Biden put former Demos president K. Sabil Rahman and former Demos legal strategies director Chirag Baines in key White House posts to oversee election-related initiatives. Rachman serves as senior counsel at the White House office that oversees regulatory changes, 
meaning he approves every federal agency's regulations and provides legal review of executive orders before they are released. If you were looking to rush out constitutionally and ethically questionable orders, this post would be key to fill. On the other hand, Baines had been Demos's director of legal strategies, helping write the paper that was turned into an executive order. He reports directly to Susan Rice, the hyper-partisan head of the Democrat Policy Council. Rice has served in political positions in Democrat White Houses and the scandal-ridden Brookings Institution. She played a role in the spying on Trump scandal, blatantly lying about the same, lying about the Benghazi terrorist attack, and lying about Bo Bergdahl's military record. Remember, he was the deserter. Susan Rice is described as President Obama's right-hand woman, and it's been said she was like a sister to the former president. She was his national security advisor at the same time Hunter Biden was hitching rides on official White House aircraft to other countries for meetings with oligarchs and corrupt government officials. Susan Rice spread conspiracy theories about the law enforcement officers in Portland during the violent Black Lives Matter riots that besieged the city of Portland. Most worrisome, she was briefed on Hillary Clinton campaign's Russia collusion hoax, which was used to destabilize the 2020 election and question its illegitimacy. Conservatives may be in the dark, but left-wing activist groups are fully involved in the plot. The left-wing dark money group Demos put out press releases immediately after the executive order was issued, saying it would be happy to work with federal agencies on the project. And then the group admitted publicly that it, quote, organized agency-based working groups and met with the staff and these agencies to provide technical expertise as they developed their initial voter registration plans to ensure those plans reflect the knowledge and priorities of various agency stakeholders, unquote. It also admits it, quote, developed research and resources to assist and advance agency efforts to implement robust voter registration opportunities, including a slide deck explainer of the agency's potential for impact, best practices for conducting voter registration of federal agencies, and recommendations for modernizing and improving the accessibility of vote.gov, unquote. Now, all of that information should be available to oversight authorities in Congress and the American taxpayers paying for its implementation, not just the left-wing groups that produced it. Yet as, this, yet as of this publication date, none of this has been shared. Congressman Ted Budd, Republican North Carolina, wrote that Biden's plan raises serious ethical, legal, and constitutional concerns. He wrote that along with three dozen Republican members of Congress on January 19th in a letter to the head of the Office of Management Budget, OMB, demanding more information by February 28th about the secret plot. That letter went unanswered. The top Republican members of nine House committees and subcommittees likewise demanded information from Susan Rice and the head of OMB in a letter they sent on March 29th. They noted that election activity goes well beyond 
the scope of each agency's authorizing statute emission. One of the concerns shared by the members was that Biden was directing agencies to work with third-party organizations. Nobody knows which third-party organizations have been approved by Susan Rice for her political efforts, nor which are being used. They also asked how much money is being spent on the effort, which statutory authorities justify the election activities, and what steps are being taken to avoid Hatch Act violations. They received no response. The Foundation for Government Accountability filed a lawsuit on April 20th to compel the Department of Justice to respond to the FOIA request for information. And the American Accountability Foundation filed suit on June 16th to compel the Justice Department to comply. Those suits are ongoing. Okay, so here's what we know. While the White House and agencies are steadfastly refusing to share details about how they're complying with the executive order, who they met with to develop their plans, or how they're justifying their involvement in something Congress has not authorized them to participate in, some details are trickling out. Here are a few examples of the widespread and coordinated effort by Biden's political appointees to meddle in the state administration of elections. First of all, in the midst of a labor crisis, the Department of Labor boasted that it was turning 2,300 American job centers previously focused on helping displaced workers find jobs into hubs of political activism. These new federally funded voter registration agencies were given guidance about how to bring in organizations to conduct so-called voter outreach. Secondly, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services likewise announced plans to turn community health centers into voter registration agencies, using thousands of health care facilities to focus on voter registration and turnout. Did you know this? Have you heard this anywhere else? I'm trying to help. Thirdly, the Housing and Urban Development Department sent notice to public housing authorities that they should begin voter registration drives and, participate and participation activities. Previously, officials have been barred from electoral activities because they receive federal funding. Fourth, Stuart Whitson, legal director for the Foundation for Government Accountability, told the Daily Signal, quote, it is presumed residents of public housing might disproportionately vote Democrat. The executive order targets people receiving government benefits who might think their benefits depend on one party in power, unquote. The Department of Education also sent Dear Colleague letters to universities telling them that federal work-study funds could now be used to support voter registration activities, contrary to previous guidance. The change was made without having gone through any rulemaking process to allow the change. Next, the U.S. Department of Agriculture said it's using its child nutrition programs to push voter registration and enlisting state, local, and federal-funded employees to implement voter registration drives in local schools. Last but not least, the Commerce Department, the U.S. Commerce Department, produced a massive 113-page report 
which likely took four agency officials many hours to generate. It directs local voting board members about polling stations and poll worker training. Now, the tactics being used by these agencies were almost certainly contained in the plan submitted to Susan Rice that had been withheld from investigators and overseers who had hoped to have some transparency about what the plans were. Frequently, the agencies claim the tactics are in response to the executive order, yet information about how they were developed has been withheld from the public for much of the year. It is unclear why Biden's political appointees are being so secretive about the work that went into their plan to engage in a federal takeover of election administration. Oh, I think I got a guess. Whatever the case, Americans have a right to know whether these bureaucracies that are meddling in elections have experts in for each state's election laws, what type of training is going on to ensure that state laws are being followed, whether they are allowing inspections and oversight to ensure no illegal activity, how they are determining whether a third-party group is genuinely nonpartisan, whether they are allowing state investigators to approve money, and how much is being spent on this federal takeover of elections. Now, that is Molly Ziegler-Hemingway, editor-in-chief of the Federalist and senior journalism fellow at Hillsdale College. The article over the, uh, at the Federalist that I just shared with you that was written by her is called, Yes, Biden is Hiding His Plan to Rig the 2022 Midterm Elections. Now, I think that's, I think that's pretty important, don't you? Have you heard anybody talk about it anywhere else? I kind of doubt it. All right, now, I don't know what's going to be done about this. I don't know what can be done about it. But it's my duty to tell you what they are doing. Okay? Now, um, this, this, this situation with uh, the young woman who used to work for Mark, uh, Mark Meadows blew up quickly. Um, the people that she said, well, he told me this and he told me this, they're saying, uh, no, not only did we not say those things, but we really want to come stay under oath that we didn't say those things. However, 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 the odious Brett Baer over Fox News chooses to believe this obvious liar. And so we got, we got audio from Brett Baer on Tuesday evening after this uh, Hutchinson woman gave her uh, testimony. And uh, Cassidy Hutchison. And Brett Baer was, is just enamored with her. 
No cross-examination. Secret Service has even said, you know what? Um, The committee could have reached out to us to see if the story is true, and and they've had weeks to do it, and, uh, and they didn't. But that doesn't bother Brett Baer. He's talking about how compelling her testimony is. And he's on a split screen there at Fox News. On one side of him is Sandra Smith. On the other side is John Roberts. Now, neither one of them is a conservative. But they look embarrassed that Brett Baer is so completely taken in by this woman who obviously is clearly lying. And when Brett Baer finally stops talking, uh, there is a long, awkward silence. John Roberts doesn't want to say anything. Sandra Smith doesn't want to say anything. And finally, one of them has to say something. Everybody knows she's lying. And 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 I've I've got for you coming up what Brother Bongino said about it because he was he worked for the Secret Service. But anyway, Brett Bear, who in my humble opinion has been in on the steal since before election night twenty twenty. Here we go. That from hearing it firsthand, she says uh, that both of those men requested pardons from the president. I think what you pointed to, Sandra, was uh, the most uh, compelling when she quotes Mark Meadows saying, uh, Pat, you heard the president. He doesn't care. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong as far as they're literally, literally calling for the vice president to be hung. And then Pat Cipollone says, this is effing crazy, according to Hutchinson. This testimony was very compelling from beginning to end. She obviously had access to all of the players. We are now hearing from the former president on various posts where he questions her uh, accuracy. He goes after her directly, says he doesn't know who she is, and said he didn't lunge at the Secret Service agent in the Beast. Uh, That didn't happen. He says he didn't throw his lunch against the wall. That didn't happen, and that she's lying. Cassie Hutchinson is under oath on Capitol Hill. Um, the president is on Truth Social, uh, making his statements. What was so compelling, I think, is is how it was laid out. We always point out that there's not a pushback, and it would have been great to hear Jim Jordan or some congressman say some other angle to this. But the testimony, in and of itself, is really, really powerful. Anybody? Sandra, can you still hear? Indeed, yes, I am here. <laughs> no, Brett, uh, to your point. Do you hear that long pause? They both look like deer in the headlights. They did not want to talk. I mean, Brett Bear kind of reminds you of Chris Wallace, doesn't he? Uh, hat tip to uh, John Nelson over at uh, Twitter for that. So, the great Sean Davis, CEO and co-founder of The Federalist, responded to Brett Baer's implication 
that Cassidy Hutchison is telling the truth because she was under oath. And Trump isn't because he's out there on his own social media platform, Truth Social. The great Sean Davis said, this is a great point because Jussie Smollett, Christine Blasey Ford, Michael Avenatti, and Amber Heard were also all under oath, which means everything they said has to be true, too. (laughs) What a maroon. Sean Davis continues. He says, and how could this have happened? I was told that this was an ontological impossibility. Bill Bill Clinton was under oath when he lied? How could that be? Because Brett Baird just said, you know, if you're under oath, you got to be telling the truth, right? I mean, that's the implication, right? What a maroon. What a, what a, what a nudnik. This guy. This guy. Now I'm going to get to Bongino blowing up Cassidy Hutchinson's story. I'm going to get to it. But first, a little bit of Ms. Hutchinson herself. Who I bet gets a book deal just like uh, Christine Blasey Ford did. Here is uh, Cassidy Hutchinson. It's a little under two minutes. She obviously has been coached. Tony proceeded to tell me that when the president got in the beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the -the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. (laughs) Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And was Mr. Angle in the room as Mr. Renato told you this story? He was. Did Mr. Angle correct or disagree with any part of the story for Mr. Renato? Mr. Angle did not correct or disagree with any part of the story. Did Mr. Engel or Mr. Ornato ever after that tell you that what Mr. Ornato had just said was untrue? Neither Mr. Ornato nor Mr. Engel told me ever that it was untrue. They also didn't tell you what they said, what you said they told you. And they're chomping a bit. Chomping at the bit to testify under oath to blow up 
your testimony. What do you think about that? doesn't matter if she purges herself under oath. She's not going to be held accountable by Biden's DOJ. Brother Daniel Bongino was not only a New York City cop, but he worked for the Secret Service for a long time. And he just blows her testimony to smithereens. Not going to lie, fam. He blows her testimony to smithereens. It's not pretty. But, I mean, it's my duty to share with you. We're going to do that coming right up. First of all, we appreciate so much our friends and advertisers for being here with us, for helping us be able to do what we do. And we certainly hope that you will thank them for sponsoring us also. And if you have a need for their goods and services, you know where to go. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live. RedRiverYourWay.com. You will be glad you did. We talk a lot about pushing back against the overreach of the federal government. What better example would there be than Obamacare? Are you like most Americans? Did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high copays keep you from going to the doctor? If you answered yes to any of these questions... You need to go to a website called MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. When you click on MyFamilyHealthPlan.com, you see the big, bold letters, Affordable Plans. Save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no copays. And then that big, beautiful red button that says Schedule Call Now. You click on the red button. You book a free consultation with my friend Art Wilborn. He makes sure there are no gaps in your coverage, and he also makes sure that your personalized health coverage gives you a plan that doesn't force you to cover things like abortion, horrible things which would deeply offend your deeply held religious beliefs. MyFamilyHealthPlan.com, 
affordable plans, save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no copays. Click the big red button, schedule a call now, book a free consultation with Art Wilborn. He makes sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Save money on your insurance at MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend Jonathan Presswood today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there, and there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-303-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thanks again to our advertisers, Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones, Art Wilborn at MyFamilyHealthPlan.com, and Mitch Ward, RedRiverYourWay.com. Appreciate you guys very much. All right, Brother Bongino just blows up the testimony from this fake sham January 6th committee, Cassidy Hutchinson, who used to work for Mark Meadows. Here's Brother Dan Bongino. So Cassidy Hutchinson says, Tony proceeded to tell me that when the president got back in the beat, got in the beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off the record moving to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. Okay, well, what's the problem with this story now? Okay, here is video, and I need you to watch this on Rumble, folks. I'm sorry, I know some of you listen, but I need you to go to Rumble and watch this very specifically. Rumble.com slash Bongino. Here is video the day of January 6th after the president left the stage. And you'll notice what Cassidy Hutchinson says, Tony called the beast. I'll address that in a second. What the media calls the limo, the beast, on only the media, right? You notice the president didn't leave in the limo as we would as the media would call it. He left in what the Secret Service calls the Camp David package, or what regular, I guess, average folks would call the SUVs. Look for yourself. See it? You'll see this car backstage. You'll see the... Now, I want you to pay very close attention. What's that? That's the presidential seals. You'll see it. That's that... The, the, did you see it with the flags on it? That's the, the, the presidential seals, only the car with the president. 
Notice every other card is not of the seals. It's just the one with the presence. Now, again, this is the kind of thing, if you're an agent, you'll notice these little details. If you're not, you'll miss them. Those presidential seals, I have them right here in my office, right here, seals from the last trip I did. I have the seals and the license plate from the car. They're magnetic seals. They come off the car, not painted on. They only go on the car the president is, is in. It doesn't matter if it's a Tesla, an SUV, or a limo. Those seals go on the car. There's a little carve-out for them where they go. The president is in the SUVs. He's not in the limo, what the media call the beast. The story can't possibly be true. You get that? The story cannot possibly be true. I want to share with you something else about the January 6th committee. From the great Julie Kelly over at American Greatness. Now, a lot of us thought that as of Monday this week, we'd heard from all the witnesses. So when they came up with this new witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, that was kind of a a surprise for some folks. So right before Cassidy Hutchinson came in to testify, Julie Kelly had dropped a bombshell of an article at amgreatness.com called January 6th Committee Ignores Key Questions About FBI. Just like they'll probably ignore the guys who want to testify that Cassidy Hutchinson is lying about them. But here's what Julie Kelly says. The final set of witnesses testifying before the January 6th Select Committee had the potential to shed more light on the government's foreknowledge of the protests on Capitol Hill that day, Jeffrey Rosen, appointed by Donald Trump on Christmas Eve 2020, to replace departing Attorney General William Barr and two of his deputies, gave opening statements and fielded questions for more than two hours last week. None of it had anything to do with the events of January 6, 2021. Instead... Jeff Rosen, Deputy Transportation Secretary under Elaine Chow, wife of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, before he was promoted in May 2019 to serve as Bill Barr's deputy, spent his time explaining how the former president pushed the Justice Department to investigate election fraud in numerous states after it failed to do so. Rosen recounted multiple requests by Trump, including the appointment of a special counsel. So last week, Rosen told committee members, quote, I will say that the Justice Department declined all those requests that I was just referencing because we did not think they were appropriate based on the facts and the law as we understood them, unquote. Now, most of the hearing focused on what happened the weekend before the Capitol protest. Rosen vehemently opposed signing a letter authored by Jeffrey Clark, the acting assistant attorney general at the time, that urged officials in the state of Georgia to call a special session to examine evidence of voter fraud in that state. Rosen, along with 
his chiefs, and dozens of federal dozens of federal prosecutors threatened to resign if Trump replaced Rosen with Clark. Sadly, unfortunately, Trump did not take up Rosen's threat. But an offhand comment by Richard Donahue, Rosen's former deputy, went unnoticed and unexplored by the committee. Donahue explained that on the afternoon of January 3, 2021, Justice Department leadership met to discuss preparations for January 6. Now, that disclosure gave committee members the ideal opening to question Rosen about the Justice Department's activities days before the protest. Who attended that meeting? What plans were in place to protect the Capitol and lawmakers if violence erupted? What intelligence did the Department, particularly the FBI, receive in advance of January 6? Committee members asked none of those questions, of course. And the explanation is clear. Jeff Rosen, as well as current Justice Department officials, do not want the American people to know about the agency's deep involvement in the events of January 6, 2021. If Representative Liz Cheney, Rhino, Wyoming, truly meant her stated goal of exposing the truth about January 6, she would have asked about a January 2022 bombshell in Newsweek that revealed how Rosen summoned elite commando agents to Quantico that very same weekend, a year earlier, to make plans for January 6, 2021. The article detailed how, contrary to the perception, Rosen and his colleagues, including FBI Director Chris Ray, have successfully fostered the Justice Department was, was not caught off guard, was not caught flat-footed on January 6, 2021. Newsweek reporter... William Arkin wrote, and I quote, Rosen made a unilateral decision to take the preparatory steps to deploy Justice Department and so-called national forces. There was no formal request from the U.S. Capitol Police, the Secret Service, or the Metropolitan Police Department. In fact, no external request from any agency. The leadership and justice in the FBI anticipated the worst and decided to act independently. The special operations forces lurking behind the scenes, unquote. Well, the specialized units included the FBI's hostage rescue team, a SWAT team, and agents from the U.S. Marshal Service and Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Snipers were staged near congressional buildings and given shoot-to-kill authority. All of the agents were deployed downtown Washington on the morning of January 6, not in the afternoon as the chaos unfolded, a claim Jeff Rosen himself has made under oath. Oh, wait, 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 let me go back. Snipers are staged near congressional buildings and given shoot-to-kill authority. I wonder if... Um, Lieutenant Michael Byrd there, police officer who shot and killed Ashley Babbitt, had been given shoot-to-kill authority. Okay, but let's go back over the next sentence. 
all of the agents, like these snipers, FBI hostage rescue team, SWAT team, agents from U.S. Marshal Service, ATF agents, they were all deployed in downtown Washington on the morning of January 6th, not in the afternoon as the chaos unfolded, a claim that Jeffrey Rosen himself made under oath. According to Newsweek, again quoting, FBI tactical teams arrived on Capitol Hill early in the day to assist in the collection of evidence at sites, including the Republican and Democrat Party National Headquarters, where explosive devices were found, unquote. Ah, yes, the long-forgotten pipe bomb threat. Not only has that story disappeared from media coverage, it has been completely ignored by the January 6th committee. Nearly 18 months later, the so-called pipe bomb aspect of the January 6th narrative remains one of the murkier events of the day. I have to reward to find the bomber who allegedly planted the explosives the night before remains unclaimed. FBI officials immediately said the agency would conduct an investigation into what they described as viable devices that could have been detonated resulting in serious injury or death, but no report has been released. And in the oddest angle of all, Politico reported last year that Kamala Harris was actually inside the Democrat National Committee headquarters when the bomb was located outside the building, raising questions as to how her Secret Service detail had overlooked the device during a security sweep before she arrived around 11.30 a.m. on January 6, 2021. Now, one would think U.S. Representative Adam Kinzinger, Rhino, Illinois, who publicly cried about the violence that happened that day, would pound the podium. It would probably sound like this. Demanding an update into a lethal threat that could have taken the life of of the incoming vice president and others nearby, or at least ask for specifics as to how Jeffrey Rosen's Justice Department initially handled the devices, but that did not happen. Readers of American Greatness know why. The pipe bomb spare looks like another FBI hoax, complete with characters tied to the FBI. Speaking of, and she links to that article, speaking of January 6th, Characters tied to the FBI, the committee has not addressed an issue of great interest to most Americans and some congressional Republicans, the involvement of FBI informants or undercover agents in the Capitol protest. Attorney General Merrick Garland last year refused to tell U.S. Representative Thomas Massey, Republican Kentucky, how many federal assets participated in the Capitol protest, if any encouraged others to enter the building, and whether any agents did. Merrick Garland said, and I quote, I'm not going to violate this norm of, uh, of, of uh, the rule of law, and I'm not going to comment on an investigation that's ongoing, unquote. Well, Republican senators have also received the silent treatment from the FBI. Jill Sanborn, executive director of the FBI's National Security Breach. Oops, uh, Freudian slip, sorry. Jill Sanborn, 
executive director of the FBI's National Security Branch, stonewalled numerous inquiries by Senator Ted Cruz as to the number of agents and informants who actively participated in the events of January 6. Sanborn also refused to say how many FBI assets may have incited crimes of violence that day. You know, the presence of federal infiltrators is not speculation. The New York Times itself reported in September that at least two informants infiltrated the Proud Boys and helped breach the Capitol perimeter on January 6th. Defense attorneys have disclosed the presence of undercover FBI agents in the vicinity of their clients during the protest. Further, dozens of agitators, including Ray Epps, inexplicably have not been charged for their clear role in stoking the chaos that day. And one only has to look as far as the FBI concocted hoax to supposedly kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020 to understand just how far the agency will go to damage Republicans, especially Donald Trump. Sanborn, by the way, was a top official of the FBI's counterterrorism division at the same time the Whitmer so-called kidnapping, the hoax, the kidnapper, the plot was devised. It's unclear whether the committee has even bothered to interview FBI Director Christopher Wray. Documenting his knowledge and actions related to January 6th would seem an essential part of the committee's official record, selectively ignoring his role and that of his agency on January 6th, points to a cover-up. Yes, indeed, it does. It points to a cover-up. God bless Julie Kelly in a sane world. She would be up for a Pulitzer Prize for her wonderful and comprehensive work over at amgreatness.com. But but we don't live in a sane world, do we? No, sadly, sadly, we we don't live in in a sane world. We live in a world where... um, where people call call this guy who clearly has lost his marbles. We live in a world where people call this guy president. You only arrest for the purpose of dealing with a felony that's committed, and I don't count drunk driving as a felony. Now, at this point, he's being interviewed by a couple of uh, polite, nice-looking Young African-American journalist is something called Vice News. And you you hear just stunned silence there. They're looking at him like, you didn't just say that. You, you, can't, you can't seriously say that you shouldn't arrest drunk drivers. Really? Really? Um, what did Pfizer know? When do they know it? That's coming up. But um, <clears throat> I wonder how many of us are still 
kind of in shock that the U.S. Supreme Court had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful decision last week about overturning Roe v. Wade. And there's so much I've been wanting to say about it, and I've said some of it, but I haven't said all of it. I want to go back again to a very unlikely place, National Review. Uh, They're mostly never-Trumpers. I shared with you last week an article written by one of the never-Trumpers basically saying, thank you, Donald Trump. You're the reason Roe was overturned. Got to give credit where it's due. Thank you, Donald Trump, for putting Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, and Neil Gorsuch on the on the on the court. The guys like, even though I didn't like you, <laughs> I got to fess up. You got this done. So he said, "Thank you, Donald Trump, and thank you, Mitch McConnell, because McConnell was the guy that stiff armed Obama and kept him from putting Merrick Garland on the court." Now, when they asked Trump about taking credit for roving overturn Roe versus Wade being overturned, Trump said, God did it. You know what? That's true. That's true. So, um, I got another one over at National Review from Dan McLaughlin, the same guy that said, Thank you, Donald Trump, even though he's a never-Trumper. And it's called We Lived to See It. He said, we lived to see it. Many of us never thought we would. This day should be celebrated for generations to come. The overturning of Roe v. Wade is a momentous milestone in American history. It is the largest single step forward for human rights in America in well over half a century. It is the largest stroke against the arbitrary taking of human life in America since the abolition of slavery in 1865. True, by overruling Roe, the Supreme Court did not ban abortion It only restored power to the elected governments to do so. State governments will have to take the next step. So will the federal government, to the extent permitted within its enumerated powers, but they have been denied that power for over 49 years. So last week's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization swept away those restrictions just as abruptly as Roe v. Wade erected them. But whereas the seven men behind Roe v. Wade assaulted our system of democracy and the rule of law, wiping out long-standing laws in nearly every state without a shred of legitimate basis in the written Constitution ratified by we the people, the Dobbs case restores the supremacy of the democratic constitution and the sovereignty of the American people. 
He says, I think back to Election Day 1984. I was 13 years old. Ronald Reagan had just won 49 states in a colossal popular landslide that validated the Reagan revolution. Those were heady times for conservatives. We believed that we were right and that what was right was finally popular. Yet the obstacles before us seemed so massive and entrenched that undoing them could be the work of generations. But we lived to see it. In 1984, the Soviet Empire had stood for over six decades. The Berlin Wall had stood for almost 25 years, and the Cold War had persisted for nearly 40 years. To a teenager, these seemed to be impossibly old things. Yet five years later, the Berlin Wall fell. Two years after that, the Soviet Union itself was gone. The whole world of the Cold War The Warsaw Pact, the Sandinistas, was swept into the dustbin of history. South African apartheid went with it. Conservative Republicans proved that they could win nationally. The party took the Senate in 1980 after a quarter of a century of being out of power, but the Democrats in 1984 continued their majority in the U.S. House of Representatives that they had held for 30 years. That, too, seemed as if it would last forever. It lasted another decade, but then in 1994, the Reagan Revolution came to the U.S. House, led by Newt Gingrich. We lived to see it. Crime and decay in our cities was such a deeply embedded condition that it seemed impervious to solution. Those of you too young to recall that era, can watch literally any movie or television show made in the 1970s or 1980s and set in a then-contemporary American city. New York City was ungovernable. But then, led by Rudy Giuliani's dramatic first year in office in 1994, many cities became remarkably safe and livable again. I would never have imagined when I graduated college in 1993 that I would become a New York City homeowner in 2000. We lived to see it. Judges and scholars of the U.S. Constitution in the 1970s scoffed at the notion of reading the document and the laws passed by Congress as if the people who wrote and ratified them meant them to bind and limit the agents of the government. Laws were read creatively. The Constitution was treated as merely a platform for liberal progressive values. The Second Amendment was handled as an embarrassment that no one took seriously. But the impossible happened. Even Democrat-appointed liberal judges began talking about reading the Constitution by its original meaning and statutes by their text. In 2008 the U.S. Supreme Court recognized an individual right to keep and bear arms just as the Constitution says. We lived to see it. But the, but the big white whale was still out there. In 1984, only two members of the U.S. Supreme Court were avowedly against 
the illeg- illegitimate overreach of Roe v. Wade. And the newest justice, Sandra Day O'Connor, at the time, would not join them. In 1992, a Supreme Court with nine Republican appointees held five to four that Roe v. Wade must stand forever because the thing that stood for 19 years was too embedded in the fabric of our search for the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That, that was a quote, by the way. The following year, one of the long-standing dissenters was replaced by an enthusiast of abortion. In 2016, another of the dissenters died with a Democrat in the White House and the Democrats appearing poised to claim another term. That was when Scalia passed. The end to a legal regime that claimed 60 million American lives seemed further and further away. We lived to see it. And maybe, because it took so long, we are finally ready to accept in our political system the value of human life. We weren't ready in 1992. But the political will is there now in many states. The nation and the world is starving for children. And because we lived to see it, other Americans yet unborn will live to see so much more that they never would have seen. What a uh, what a remarkable article by uh, Dan McLaughlin over at Roe v. Wade. Pardon me, over at uh, National Review about Roe v. Wade being overturned last Friday. I just uh, I needed to share that with you. But we're hearing from some people who call themselves Christians that we shouldn't celebrate. That we should be nicer to the folks who are upset about Roe being overturned. Not that these people claim themselves that they're upset about Roe being overturned, but but they're They're telling us that we shouldn't uh, gloat. We shouldn't celebrate Roe being overturned. Now, the great Allie Beth Stuckey, who has her own podcast, has some thoughts about that. This is about a minute 15, and I, I, I could not have said it better myself. I do not want to hear your chiding towards pro-life Christians saying that we need to be doing more for women. You have no idea what we have been doing for women. You have no idea. And if you still have no idea at this point, that is a choice that you have made. Because there are thousands of pro-life pregnancy centers that exist that have been doing all of the things that you're saying that Christians need to do before they can celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So if you're worried about a deficit of compassion in Christians towards these vulnerable women, then you need to get up off your couch, you need to get off Instagram, you need to go out your door, in your car, drive down the road, go to your pro-life pregnancy center and say, what do you do and how can I help? Okay? So 
no more finger wagging, no more nagging, no more fake self-righteousness from those of you who are saying, oh, I just don't know how I feel about the abortion issue. I don't know how I feel about Roe v. Wade because we really need to do more to help the poor. No, you need to do more to help the poor. Don't, don't assume that the rest of us aren't doing it. Those of us who are pro-life have been putting our money and our time and our energy where our mouth is for a very long time. The fact that you have it is your problem. Take that up with God. That's right, sister. Amen. Amen. So Molly Hemingway, I shared with you an article by her from the Federalist earlier in the show. Molly Hemingway says there is no issue. She's over on on, on Twitter the other day. She says, there's no issue on which corporate media are more out of line with public opinion, the Constitution, and human rights than abortion. They are bloodthirsty supporters of and prioritize the violence of abortion. Keep that in mind as you follow their propaganda outlets today. So the potato... Ryan Stelter, host of Reliable Sources TV show at CNN, responded just by saying editor-in-chief of The Federalist. In other words, he's implying, can you believe that she would say something so outrageous? Well, then a buddy of mine who goes by Oil Field Rando, we follow each other on Twitter, responded to the potato, Brian Stelter, saying, you're going to have to explain how she's wrong considering your colleague tried to pressure a woman into an abortion and subsequently tried to avoid paying child support when he failed. Do you know about that? Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin over at CNN. Yeah. Show enough did. Now, there's a guy named Ken Olin. He's an actor who used to be popular and well-known back in the 80s. And he's on Twitter, and he has 275,000 followers, something like that. Um. Best known for uh, playing Michael Stedman in the 30-something TV show. I go over 30 years ago. And he's been in some other shows. This is us. But who watches network TV anyway? Anyway, so Ken Olin on uh, Twitter, in response to Roe being overturned, said, In states where abortion is illegal, the father should be financially on the hook at the moment of conception. And uh, so uh, a lot of conservatives are saying, congratulations, you just kind of figure out what we've been saying the whole whole time. You know, I've said this for many years. The reason that abortion was legal all those years. The reason that so many people, especially um, young men, 
were in favor of Roe v. Wade staying untouched was because it was a lot cheaper for them to uh, pay for their babies to be murdered than to pay for 18 years of child support. And uh, in the cases where men were cheating on their wives and impregnated whoever they were cheating with, uh, the divorce could be kind of messy and and uh, expensive also. You know, I mean, you're talking about the patriarchy. Planned Parenthood is the patriarchy, right? You ever, you ever heard any of those recordings of... Um, Young women calling in, posing as minors, and Planned Parenthood offering to uh, give them abortions without telling their parents, without because they're mandated reporters, without reporting the, the child abuse. Little girl calls in, says, "I'm 13. My boyfriend is, you know, 32 or whatever." Oh yeah, yeah, we can take care of that. Planned Parenthood is also white supremacism because. Going all the way back more than 100 years to the, their founder, Margaret Sanger, they're all about, well, she said we don't want people to realize that we're trying to uh, ex, you know, exterminate the Negro race. Why do you think almost all the Planned Parenthoods were in communities of color? Don't tell me you love black folk if you want their babies dead. Don't tell me that. Don't bring that stuff up in here. No. It's not true. So, um, all these black Democrat politicians who are upset about Roe v. Wade being overturned, they're sellouts. They're sellouts. Had to be said, I'm not sorry for saying it. I will never apologize for saying it because it's true. Now, if you're listening to the podcast, one of the uh, people listening at 3.44 a.m. Eastern, 2.44 a.m. Central to the live stream, just said, thank the Dems that were so determined to kill babies they couldn't leave Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion alone, so they took it to the Supreme Court and lost. And if they hadn't done it with a push from God, Roe would not have been overturned. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And that's the truth. Now, how much, what did Pfizer know and when did they know it? What did Pfizer know and when did they know it? That's something we're going to address momentarily. Let me once again express how thankful we are to our advertisers. I want to mention a couple of them to you. They make it possible for us to do what we do. Like my friend Justin Minton, M-I-N-T-O-N, Minton in Benton. Now, Justin's a former insurance adjuster, 
who left the insurance industry to become a private lawyer, founded the Minton Law Firm to help injured people fight against powerful insurance companies and corporations. And he has sure helped me out with the three automobile accidents I've been in since 2019. The Minton Law Firm has a great team of lawyers, including the 2016 Trial Lawyer of the Year and the 2016 Outstanding Young Lawyer of the Year. The insurance companies take Justin Minton and his team of lawyers seriously because they know they can and will take your case to trial if need be. So whether you want to go to trial or settle out of court, it's a really good idea to have a knowledgeable trial attorney on your side. Justin's team aims to bring justice to clients who've been injured and need somebody to stand up for them. No matter what the injury, Justin Minton, make sure the Minton Law Firm always works hard for you. Whether you're in a car wreck, hurt of the job, or you or a loved one is suffering from the carelessness of another, if you're in Arkansas, Justin Minton Law, M-I-N-T-O-N, Minton and Benton, is here to help you. Just call the Minton Law Firm, 501-943-4195, or visit justinmintonlaw.com today. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. All right, thanks again to our friends and advertisers, Justin Minton, M-I-N-T-O-N, Minton and Benton, Uh, not only an advertiser, but my attorney, also, thank you once again to our friends, Drs. J.R. and Tanya Crabtree at Arkansas Upper Cervical Center. Not only our advertisers, but my doctors and my really good friends. Appreciate all y'all. All our advertisers are our friends. We uh, we appreciate we We couldn't do what we do without their support, and we hope that you will support them. All right, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA. Believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice. The way you want to online. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States. 
Okay, today's tweet of the day. Uh, Sal the agorist or Sal the agorist. I don't know how you pronounce that. He has a screenshot of a tweet from Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot and a response to Mayor Lightfoot. So Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Chicago, tweeted on May 4th, I guess about the time that uh, the leak of the draft on the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade came out. She said, if you are in need of an abortion or any other reproductive care, Chicago will always be there for you. And then the response to her tweet from a guy who goes by the name Sneed Rancher, he said, Chicago will shoot your kid right in your apartment. So, I mean, there you go. There you go. That's it. I hope and I pray that uh, Chicago will be set free from their misery at some point. All right. Now, let me just, before we get to how much Pfizer knew and when do they know it and all that, this guy I follow on Twitter who goes by Election Wizard, said, I remember the warnings about Trump's lack of Christian virtue. Remember that? Hey, I might have been one of them. He says, these prophecies ignore the biblical model. God deliberately chooses flawed vessels for his purpose. Trump told us he was no angel, but as the imperfect president said, overturning Roe was God's decision. I mean, what are you going to do with that? What what are you going to do with that? Now, Bruce Ashford, who writes for First Things Magazine, The Daily Signal, Daily Caller, Carolina Journal. Oh, a Tar Heel. Got to be a good guy. He's out there on Twitter saying, a clarification over the past few days, a lot has been said about Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. After watching many of the pro-choice responses, I think a little clarification is needed. Leftist discourse often frames Roe v. Wade in terms of women's reproductive rights using any one of three scientifically implausible arguments. However, Roe v. Wade has nothing to do with women's rights. One errant approach defines the unborn being as a part of the woman's body, similar, for example, to her toenails. They claim an abortion is similar to clipping a woman's toenails. Yet the unborn being has its own unique DNA. It is not a part. A second errant approach contends that the unborn being is a parasite, However, the unborn being soon matures, thus it is not a parasite. Plus, the same logic leads to infanticide because a newborn baby still depends heavily 
on her mother. A third errant approach contends that the unborn being is the woman's property. This is how the legal system has recently treated the unborn. However, this is false and deeply ironic in a nation that formerly viewed black Americans as property. Thus, we must recognize unborn beings for who they are, persons who have just as much right to justice and equality as any other person. As former fetuses, all of us, we must safeguard the full dignity and personhood of every American, including unborn Americans. Now, let me just add this, and God bless Bruce Ashford. Let me just add this. Have you ever heard somebody say, uh, oh, it's not a baby, it's a fetus? Do you know how to answer that assertion? Let me, let me explain to you. Fetus is a Latin word, and it is Latin for little one or human offspring. So, it is used by pro-abortion people in an attempt to dehumanize babies that they want dead. And that's it. And you can use that. You don't have to quote me. All right, the great Joel Berry, managing editor of the Babylon Bee, also out there on Twitter the other day, said, a lot of times liberals say, you're not pro-life, you're just pro-birth. Of all the narratives repeated by the pro-abortion left, this one bugs me the most. Let's examine it. He says, in our area alone, there are four crisis pregnancy centers. At these centers, you can get free prenatal care, free baby formula, free diapers, free clothes, free car seats and cribs, community and support. There's also a local pro-life center that offers free daycare to single moms who have jobs or need to go to school, free meals for kids, community and support. There are several inner-city missions run by pro-lifers in the area that offer free food and shelter and free clothing. There are hundreds of pro-life churches in my area, and many of these, including my own church, you can walk in any day and get free groceries, gas cards, free counseling for addiction, depression, etc., love, community, and support. He says, I have personally seen pro-lifers take single moms into their own homes, buy them cars, adopt their babies, pay their medical expenses, and other, and offer them every resource imaginable without judgment. So when you hear the line, you don't care about the baby after it's born, remember that what you're hearing is projection. See, pro-choicers aren't doing any of the things that we just told you about. In fact, they would rather kill a baby or pawn it off on the government than to personally take care of any of these impoverished children. For all their sanctimony about human life, there's little evidence they really care about it before or after birth. He says, if you're reading this and haven't donated or volunteered at your local pregnancy center, call them up and do it today. And this isn't exclusive to my area. Pregnancy centers outnumber abortion clinics three to one in this country, churches even more. No matter where you go, there is help for you. By contrast, there's only one abortion clinic in my area. It's only open 
two days per week, and women are shuffled in and out as quickly as possible. They have nearly killed a few patients and put women in the hospital with lacerated uteruses and offered no help or follow-up. A few years ago, the abortionist who previously ran the clinic went to jail for sexual abuse of minors. It's laughable that these people try to claim moral high ground on this issue. Utterly laughable. So thank you to Joel Berry, managing editor of the Babylon Bee. That's good stuff. Good stuff. All right, now um, I need to share with you, um, Dr. Peter McCullough was testifying before the uh, Health and Human Services Committee in the Texas State Legislature. And so I need to share with you what Dr. McCullough said. This is some messed up stuff right here. This is some messed up stuff. So, anyway, here he is. He knew by January 22nd there was a problem because the U.S. CDC Vaccine University Event Reporting System had too many deaths that have already happened with a COVID-19 vaccine than they had from all the prior vaccines combined. January 22nd of 2021, the warning bells came off. And then nothing happened. We knew on January 29th through Freedom of Information now, our Center for Disease, our, uh, our U.S. Uh, FDA and Center for Disease Control was supposed to be putting out monthly safety reports for America. No safety report. Lesson learned from this committee, get a vaccine safety committee together. Get them together and start having a meet. If you're not seeing safety being provided at a federal level, remember, it's safety, safety, safety. It would have been wonderful if these vaccines would have worked, but it was all about safety. We now know through, through court-ordered documents, freedom of information documents, Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths within 90 days of release of their vaccine. Pfizer knew about it. We don't know if the FDA knew about it. Nobody did anything. And the freight train continued. Now, fast forward, as deaths started to occur, people started to get very, very uncomfortable. You saw all the pushbacks, protests, all kinds of worldwide uh, uh, feelings of great vaccine hesitancy because people were dying shortly after the vaccine. Papers were published. 50% of the deaths occur within 48 hours, 80% within a week. We know the vaccines installed the genetic material for the Wuhan spike protein that was manipulated in a biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. There are now a thousand papers published on the spike protein and the vaccines. A thousand that deal with vaccine injuries. And they're well characterized. And the FDA agrees. The vaccines cause blood clots. The vaccines cause heart damage. The vaccines cause neurologic damage. They also cause well characterized immunologic and hematologic system damage. This is in the peer-reviewed literature. This is not equivocal. This is not a subject of controversy or debate. It's in our literature. Um, I don't know what to do about that other than to pray for justice. People need to be held accountable. See, this is one of the things that happened when I was uh, running for governor. I would talk about the fact that even before we had the vaccines, people go to the hospital and they wouldn't treat them. They wouldn't give them ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. 
wind up getting giving them remdesivir, which in many cases shuts down your organs, and put them on a ventilator and kill them. It's called murder. And I said, you know, um, there's going to be a reckoning, and I don't know what the reckoning will look like. I mean, we we will all have to stand before the Lord and give an account for what we have done on this earth. Our only hope is that the Father sent the Son to die for our sins on the cross. He commands us to repent of our sins and obey him. So, I mean, I hope some of these people will be held accountable in a court on this earth. But um, it didn't really occur to me when I started running for governor that I would be able to share the gospel, but I did. I was able to. And the, 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 the fact of man's inhumanity to man, the fact that there are hospitals killing people instead of trying to heal them with COVID gave me a chance to share the gospel. So, pray for justice. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to tell you to do. I mean, I made it very clear if I was elected governor, I would be firing the head of the state health department and the surgeon general of the state and the head of the uh, University of Arkansas Medical Center, medical system, pardon me. But it was not to be. It was not to be. So there was a a comedian that I had never heard of before who recently passed away. And um, always very sad, a young person passes away in the prime of life. A guy named Nick Nemiroff, he was a Canadian stand-up comedian, mostly noted for his 2020 comedy album, The Pursuit of Comedy Has Ruined My Life. which won some awards in Canada. But um, he died Monday, June 27th. And his manager indicated in a text message to the Canadian broadcasting company that uh, Nick Nemiroff had died in his sleep. Well, there is a video out now on Twitter of him in a hospital bed saying, this. I will not get the third shot. I will not. Pfizer me once. No shame. Pfizer me twice. Shame on COVID. Pfizer me three times. Shame on you. You want me to get a third shot? What's next? A fifth shot? No, thank you. Gee, I wonder if his sudden death in his sleep at 33 years old has anything to do with the vaccine. People are dropping like flies, you know. Dropping like flies. There needs to be accountability. There really does. 
before I get out of here, I, I, I got to I got to share a couple other things with you. I know it's late at night, um, but uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, I tell you what, I respect and admire Marjorie Taylor Greene so much. And she was spitting fire on this one. It's about two minutes long. Testimony speaks for itself. She said she never talked to me, and she said she heard. So that doesn't say anything, but basically it's awesome. But is that true? What about the ruling today? Yeah, are y'all not interested in about the ruling? Or well, how, we, about, we, how about AOC saying take to the streets? Would y'all like to talk about well, that? Would you, you? How about AOC saying take to the streets? Would y'all like to talk about that? Consider that an insurrection. Can I ask? I you? think I think you should. I think you should be asking Democrats: Are they going to call for peace here in our city, or are they or are they calling for violence? Because everything I've heard out of them is they're calling for violence. The I'm on record peace. always saying that January 6th was wrong, and I'm on record saying that it shocked me. And I don't understand why the National Guard wasn't here. Why wasn't the National Guard here? And then another question is: What about Ray Epps? Why isn't he on television with the January? Ooh, Ray Epps. Oh, man, they don't want to talk about Ray Epps. Some of those reporters probably don't even know who he is, but anyway. So I'm not the one you need to be asking questions to. You should be asking Democrats today, are they going to call for peace? Are they going to call for people to abide by the laws today in this in this important historic ruling? Or are they going to continue what they always do, which is riot, damage, attack the Supreme Court? Are they going to burn it down because that's what they've said? Are they going to be attacking pregnancy resource centers, women's clinics, churches, and firebombing them like James Revenge? and Ruth in us? I certainly hope not. I think we should be protecting life and we should be we should be calling for everyone to to obey the law. Can you say yes or no? Did you ask for a pardon? Can I can say, yes say that no? our attorney general needs to enforce the laws too. And then why isn't Nancy Pelosi and everybody calling for the National Guard over there? These are the questions that need to be asked. Congresswoman, if Republicans retake the House, do you expect and do you want to see more abortion restrictions passed? I, I'm on record. I, I believe in life at conception. I would love to see abortion ended in the United States. That would be my ultimate goal. And, and as far as pardons are concerned, I think we should pardon Julian Assange. I think we should, we should pardon Edward Snowden. Those people do have pardons. You know what? You're a member of the press. You should care about what I just said. It really matters. Wow. Man, oh, man. Wow. That's uh that's intense. That's intense. I don't think I played this one yet, did I? Dr. Malone warning about the vaccine. It's not adequate to only consider the short-term adverse events as related to the vaccine. We must acknowledge that the genetic COVID-19 genetic injections cause far more harm than good and provide zero benefit relative to risk for the young and healthy. They do not reduce COVID-19 infection, which is treatable and not terminal. 
Furthermore, the most recent data demonstrates that you are more likely to become infected or have disease or even death if you've been vaccinated compared to the unvaccinated people. This is shocking to hear, but it is what the data are showing us. The data now show that these experimental gene therapy treatments can damage your children as well as yourself. They can damage your heart, your brain, your reproductive tissue, and your lungs. This can include permanent damage and disablement of your immune system. How about that? So the Spectator in Australia has this article, Sudden Adult Death Syndrome Baffles Doctors. Oh, yeah, I bet they're baffled. A strange new medical anomaly has doctors baffled as it sweeps across the country. Sudden Adult Death Syndrome is on the rise and is tragically claiming the lives of healthy young adults, sometimes in their sleep. Essentially, people are dying without displaying any prior sign of illness. They simply do not wake up after going to bed or collapse during the day. Reports of sudden adult death syndrome, or SADS, have been increasing in recent weeks in Australia. A News.com web piece explains that sudden adult death syndrome is an umbrella term to describe unexpected deaths in young people, usually under 40, when a post-mortem can find no obvious cause of death. The Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne, Australia, hopes to roll out a nationwide registry to track cases. Come on, man. Come on, man. You know what it is. You know what's up. As my peeps would say, you know what to do. The great Daniel Horowitz over the blaze, senior editor of the blaze. Has some graphs. He says Taiwan suffered almost zero COVID deaths until the critical mass had gotten vaccinated. And then the COVID deaths went through the roof, the exact opposite of anything we could have imagined. Wonder how that uh, wonder how that happened. How's that possible? Yeah. Washington Examiner reports Joe Biden unwittingly helped to finance Hunter's trysts with Russia-linked escorts. Unwittingly, huh? Really? Have you seen the video of him haranguing the Russian prostitute who's probably not a prostitute, she's probably a, a victim of 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 sex trafficking. Here's here's Hunter Biden hassling this young woman who seems to be terrified. Let's do it. Oh, I see. It's got to play an ad first. Well, I'm glad I didn't unmute it then. All right. All right, come on. I want Hunter. Well, let's get through the ad. How much time is left in this thing? Oh, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. 
Still can't hear it. Okay, seriously, I want to unmute this thing. I want to play it. Here we go. He's walking downstairs in an apartment. And she's sitting in a chair downstairs. Sweetheart? Hey. Hey. Are you okay? Everything fine? Are you hurt in any way? Okay. Any, any way are you hurt? Hey. She seems to be on the phone speaking Russian. I don't even know if she understands English. Is anything hurt on you? Anything? I was literally saying, I'm sorry that it took so long to give you $10,000. Do you have any bruise? Anything? Is any? Have I ever touched you in a bad way? Ever? Have I asked you every time if I could touch you? Every time? Sweetheart, look at me. You cannot talk to me that way and say things like that. Because I'm more respectful than anyone you've ever met. Are you okay? What? Here. No. I thought you said you wanted water. It's all the water I have. So, John Hayward over at uh, Breitbart said, Call me old-fashioned, but I kind of think maybe documentary evidence that the sitting president of the United States paid cash money to support human trafficking in Russia is something Congress ought to be investigating, not goofy secondhand fairy tales about the previous one. I mean, Washington Examiner, Joe Biden unwittingly helped Finance hunters trysts with Russia-linked escorts. I don't think it was unwittingly at all. Why would you think it was unwitting? No, I I don't think so. I just, uh, no. I don't think so. All right, you've been listening to episode 184 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Simpier the Tenth. Bam, that's the way it is. Thursday, June thirtieth, twenty twenty two.